Hi, this is Loretta Bozing on the PBM Reform Podcast, brought to you by Unite for Safe Medications. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent and community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. The House Energy Commerce Committee cleared a PBM bill that seems to contain more transparency loopholes and makes more limited policy tweaks to the drug supply chain middlemen that the Senate Help Committee's bill, that's what it's called, H-E-L-P Committee's bill, Um, However, the House side legislation would pull back the curtain on specialty drug reimbursement in a way that the Senate version does not pull back. This was an executive summary that I pulled from a June 5th publication from Pink Sheet, uh, Sightline Regulatory, that was titled PBM Reform, Vertical Integration, Specialty Drug Tracking Among Differences in House versus Senate Bills. And while I applaud all the efforts of our organizations internal to our pharmacy um, industry, um, hats off and applauding the NCPA, um, Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, all of the state organizations that have worked on this. Finally, we're at a point that so many of our state and federal legislators are understanding that there is a major issue in our US healthcare system with regards to how PBMs have built systems that favor profit over healthcare services. And what irritates me and why we started the PBM Reform Podcast was because of the impact that this has on our pharmacists, pharmacist care, community independent pharmacies, and the tax dollars that I personally pay to the system that are going to profit over healthcare. And with that, lots of irritation and lots of confusion. But the reason why I read to our listeners this um, passage is because even though we've focused on PBM reform, and even though people are finally clawing back some of the mystery, look what's happening. Even the bills that are being put in place in order to become policy, in order to control and regulate the three biggest PBMs in in this broken system that's in here now, the Senate and the House have different bills, different views, different lobbyists, different flavors of what is PBM. And then you can start splicing hairs. We can talk about the general PBM and the general everyday um, prescriptions that are flowing versus the specialty rare disease state meds that are hundreds of thousands of dollars more that also have a whole nother uh, bucket of mystery to them. The reason why the Pharmacy Podcast Network commits to this is to inform you, the pharmacist, the pharmacy owner, the stakeholder, 
the uh, association member of what's going on. And I am so proud that we can bring people to our podcast that really understand the underbelly of what's taking place in the beast of PBM reform and how complex it is. Antonio Chacha is one of my heroes in the realm of PBM reform because he disintegrates the bullshit and he unravels the mystery and he takes data analytics to show the truth. And telling those stories are so important. Another hero that I wanna welcome is Loretta Bozing, who is a mother, who is a patient advocate, who really understands PBM reform once again from the inside out. Antonio and Loretta, I wanna welcome you to the PBM reform podcast. Thank you Great for to be with you, us. Todd. All right, I'm gonna start out with Antonio. I kind of shot out um, an idea of how we talk about and update the difference between Senate and House. And I don't necessarily wanna get into the details of that. What I do wanna do is access, it's, it's three access advisors. Yes, our access three advisors, three access advisors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it and your team do nothing but unravel like I said, the mystery based on data. Give us an update of where we are right now and some of the things that you're working on that, that tie into PBM reform. Well, Todd, as, as you and I, I think one of the first conversations we ever had a few years ago was really centered around how PBMs were manipulating generic drug prices in Ohio, uh, largely through spread pricing, where they would pay pharmacies low, bill a plan sponsor, in our case, the Ohio Medicaid program, a, a different rate and then pocket the difference. Um, a fast forward the tape, you know, Ohio found that gap to be worth around $245 million in a single year of our Medicaid program, which was intended to provide access to medicines to our poor and underserved in the state of Ohio. Well, after that happened, uh, and after it was revealed, and after Ohio fired those PBMs and redesigned or tried, or started working to redesign that system, uh, we saw that PBMs stayed strong in general. Um, I don't know about you, but like if I had a business, which I do have one, not nearly the size of a PBM, a large one, but a $245 million hit would be pretty considerable even to some of the largest companies in the world. And they just kept on trucking. And, and there were two main reasons that they were able to keep going. And that is because that PBM have historically made a lot of money by inflating the cost of brand name drugs through harvesting rebates from drug manufacturers. They have historically made a lot of money marking up generic drugs through spread pricing. But if you look at PBM balance sheets, I'll, I'll use Nephron Research, which is a Wall Street analytics firm as an example, they track the profit line items for the largest PBMs in the country, CBS Caremark Express Scripts and OptumRx. And over a five-year period, these traditional forms of PBM compensation have actually been diminishing. They're making less profits over time on rebates. They're making less profits over time on spread pricing. But that's them self-reporting where those profits are, are coming from. Where they're giving way to, those line items are going away, they're giving way to increased profits over time 
on loosely defined administrative fees and they're making more money on specialty drugs and specialty pharmacy fulfillment. And in fact, today, from a PBM perspective, they are making a major the most amount of profits within that line item, which is weird because specialty drugs are considered to be the most high-priced medicines from a manufacturer's perspective. Specialty drugs, depending on your definition of what a specialty drug is, certainly we can talk about the ambiguity there uh, later, but specialty drugs in general make about 1% or 2% of overall drug per, or overall prescriptions that are paid for, but in general, they account for almost 50% at this point of overall drug spending. PBMs who are hired to control those costs are now telling us as consumers that these are where most of their profits are being generated as an enterprise. And so when you look at PBM reform, regardless of what your motivations for those reforms are, usually those that engage in these reforms because we want lower drug costs. Well, if the companies that we hire to control the cost of medicines are making a substantial amount of their profits from those drugs, we have a problem, right? And you can't solve drug pricing, you can't solve PBM efficiency issues if you don't have a laser focus on how PBMs profit and set the prices of specialty drugs. Yeah, that is so frustrating. Um, Loretta, if I want to die, I'll get between a bear and her cubs. And if you do that, even accidentally walking in a woods and you see a bear and her cubs, the best thing for you to do is to get the hell out of the way and don't get between her. So when I think of mothers um, thinking of their, their children and what their children need, the medications that your son needs, this sparked passion in you and you started Unite for uh, Safe Medications. We've been following you for years. Your advocacy, your intelligence, your understanding of PBMs, which was a mystery when you first started this, has become so focal. When you're listening to, um, to Antonio give us kind of like an updated summary, give us your own update and, and what you're doing in helping us to forward PBM, uh, PBM reform. Yes, I started Unite for Safe Medications because I wanted the ability to ensure that my son's medications would forever be safe, um, you know, that easy to access um, and affordable. And whenever I uh, first uncovered the issues with PBMs, my son was on a specialty medication, which Antonio just spoke a lot about. Um, and when I learned that where so many patients are being uh, forced to risk their lives with delays in temperature control, I found out that it about PBMs and that it's really just about the money that they can make off of those drugs. It's not about what's safe and and what's best and not even what's affordable because we found out that they had reimbursed their own pharmacy 10 times more than my local pharmacy. So it wasn't about cost. So uh, I started Unite for Safe Medications. Currently what we're doing is uniting patients to fight for their rights to obtain their medications safer and ensure that they they're, they have access to their local pharmacy and that their local pharmacy survives. Um, currently, a lot of the, uh, the bills that we're seeing, they just don't do enough about access. You know, it, 
affordability is part of it. The drug pricing is certainly, you know, the cause of it, but they are destroying our access. So currently that's what we're doing uh, with our organization. So we have to break this into pieces. There are so many facets of where we've gone and how far we've come. I have to applaud the organizations that have taken us to our current state right now, June of 2023. Things have changed. We lifted the gag clause, which was a white collar crime to have to stand before your pharmacist and your pharmacist look at their patient who they've known for years and not be able to tell them if they could get their medication in another way at a lesser cost. That was a gag clause, which was to me, that's insanity. Now that's no longer there, but I but that's part of one of the parts of reform, meaning Loretta and, and Antonio, we know there is no silver single bullet that's going to take care of this issue. We're going to have to break this up into pieces. As I said in the beginning of this podcast, the, the Senate and the House are receiving components of different information, trying to build um, policy and laws that can help to control this, coming at it from different sectors. Loretta, what what would you say we could break down our listeners today? Lots of them are pharmacy owners. Which one are you focused on in the component of what is PBM reform? And what's your advice for listeners and in getting involved to help accelerate that? You know, listeners, you need to reach out to your representatives, your legislators. It doesn't matter if they're not on the same, you know, political spectrum as you. They need to hear from you. Uh, there are, you know, in my own state, there are representatives that say, I never have anyone contact us with any issues related to price or access. You know, that should not be happening whenever I see everyday patients and pharmacists uh, vocally on social media talking about those issues. We need to get these patients and uh, pharmacists to share those stories with their legislators. That's the number one. Um, and we have to make sure that we're giving them examples that are that they can easily understand. It was a shock to me to, as someone who was just uncovering these issues on my own, to find so many of our state legislators do not understand PBMs. Uh, they don't know enough about them. You know, so, you know, starting from the very basics, as many pharmacists did me, which is why I can now help other people, you know, and, and giving them the opportunity to come back to you and ask questions as needed. Antonio, in the first quarter of 2024, pharmacies will have the retroactive DRR fees from 2023. This makes me um, get sweaty and angry. But the and and the new DIR fees uh, will occur at the point of sale, and this means that pharmacies will be paying double the amount of DIR fees that they normally would uh, for the first part of 2024 until all of the retroactive fees have been paid. Oh my God, this is insanity to me. I don't know what domino fell a couple years ago, a year ago, months ago to cause this to happen. This is going to impact thousands of our community independent pharmacies. Some of those pharmacies, Antonio, as you know, are the only healthcare provider for miles within communities who rely on them. Can you kind of speak to that issue? And if there's a nut to crack specifically about that reform that's happening in 2024? Well, regardless of the motivations for what DIR fees are, and certainly from a pharmacy owner's perspective, I'm sure most are like, it's just another shell game. 
But let's let's take PBMs at their word and let's pretend that it's not just financial engineering to take money out of the system. The idea of DIR fees were that, look, there's going to be certain certain types of price concessions that pharmacies will make under the guise that they will be assessed based upon how well you perform quality metrics that are subjectively created by the PBM. Now, obviously, those metrics have been manipulated in many ways that are favorable to pharmacies that are owned by PBMs and disadvantageous to pharmacies who may be actually engaging in much better quality from a, pharmacy, from a patient perspective that may differ from the metrics that PBMs are subjectively using to assess pharmacies these penalties. Well, just as I, as I laid that out, the question then becomes, how are concessions assessed? DIR fees ultimately are acquired by PBMs from pharmacies months after the, trans, the initial transaction occurs. And so what is the transaction? A pharmacy is compensated essentially in two ways. One is by collecting money from a patient in the form of co-pays or cost sharing. The other form is from compensation from the PBM. Whether the pharmacy is paid fairly or not, if there is going to be some sort of retroactive concession that is made after the fact, that is ultimately money that is coming from the pool created by both the patient and the PBM. So for simplicity's sake, and pharmacists might giggle when I say this, pharmacies are overpaid at the point of sale relative to what will be the net price after the DIR adjustments are made. What that means is that historically, the way that DIR fees have been adjudicated, patients have been overcharged. If patients are contributing to a pot of money that ultimately is being reconciled with clawbacks, that means the patient is funding the scheme that ultimately allows the PBM to take those funds away. So what CMS did, largely at the prompting of, of national pharmacy organizations, is say, look, these DIR fees are harmful to the patient, but they also result in unpredictability from a pharmacy perspective. And obviously, there could be concerns around the predatory nature of how the fees are structured and how who they benefit and who they disproportionately penalize. Well, CMS said, OK, well, we'll, we'll fix the patient part of this, right? And we'll try to make sure that the pharmacy have better predictability so they don't have these big clawbacks knock them out. Well, so now they didn't eliminate the concept of DIR. They just said, look, the patient and the pharmacy need to experience the lowest amount that could possibly happen at the point of sale. So in the current model, the pharmacy is overpaid and then they get a clawback. In the new model, the intent is the pharmacy is essentially underpaid and there is a prospective bonus payment that they could achieve. Well, what will happen in 2024 is these two policies will converge. And so now the pharmacy will have a big bill that they'll have to pay at some point in 2024, but they won't have the cash flow that they were used to in order to essentially pay that. So you're going to get a big surprise bill, and you're not going to have excess cash flow on hand that you were used to in order to pay it. It's just a, it's just a nightmare. There was an update from the American Pharmacist Association about the CMS-issued final rule 
that eliminates PBM retroactive application of direct and indirect remuneration or DIR fees beginning in 2024, requiring that they be reflected in the negotiated price the patient pays at the pharmacy counter, which would create greater transparency for patients. And then all of a sudden the retroactive fees uh, come back to bite you um, later in the first quarter of 2024. The final rule merely moves the fees to the point of sale negotiated price and does not eliminate them. And that is where, um, you know, is, is frustrating because it, it, it needs to be completely done away with so that we can have community pharmacies not having to um, pay things into the future that were adjudicated, um, you know, many months before. I don't know of any other industry that, that has this type of uh, system in place. Um, what I do know is this is going to cause a lot of havoc um, on our independent community pharmacies. Loretta, what have you heard about um, this um, DIR fee apocalypse that's coming? Um, Lisa Fast actually termed it that from from our um, champions over at Diversifier X. But what have you heard about this and, and how do you believe this could affect um, parents and caretakers like yourself? I see a lot of pharmacies, even yesterday, there was a pharmacy in New York that had closed. And when I see that, and I'm hearing so many pharmacists saying, we're going to end up close, you know, there's no way we're going to make it in 2024. It breaks my heart because from a patient's perspective, caregiver's perspective, I know what that means. I know that that means that those patients are not going to be able to get safe access to care when, when all they're left with is, a chain pharmacy, sadly, a lot of those, you know, they're understaffed and their their hands are tied to corporate policies. And we look at what a great job independent pharmacies did with even, you know, during the pandemic with the COVID vaccines. And it's like, we are going to lose the best pharmaceutical care that we have in our nation if we do not do something to save these pharmacies from these abusive DIR fees. It's certainly not enough you know, what's, what's happening with CMS and current legislation to save not just the pharmacies. And it, it really upsets me when people are constantly talking about, oh, it's, it's the pharmacists. No, it's the patients. It's the people in those communities that need access to those pharmacies. Our legislators need to do more to save them. The current legislation is not enough. Our proposed legislation. So, Antonio, what is the call out to our listeners, people listening. Um, Loretta was saying to reach out to your local um, House of Representatives, your your local maybe state senators, just to help educate. Send this podcast to those legislators um, through their email. Give them a call. Let them know that you sent it to them because they probably get a lot of email that could be junk, but have them listen to this, which really breaks it down and gives them the updates and the fundamentals. But what else can be done, Antonio, at this point, especially when we have made, it's not like we haven't made progression. I know that progress has been made. Um, your organization, Antonio, has been key at this in gathering uh, the data from your team at 3Access Advisors, but what's the call out um, and next steps that our listeners should be taking in, in order to um, help um, with PBM reform? At the end of the day, uh, you know, there's, I always use the quote with, with mystery comes margin and, and DIR fees, spread pricing, effective rate clawbacks, specialty pharmacy pricing manipulation through average wholesale price 
guarantees, bogus definitions that, that pervade PBM contracts, both with employers and pharmacies. All of these are mechanisms to create more mystery. And so when I think, look, if DIR fees, not all pharmacists will want to hear this, but I think most will understand the spirit with which I say it. I believe very strongly that pharmacists add value to the healthcare delivery system. And I also aware that different pharmacies and different pharmacists provide different degrees of value. If you are an understaffed and under-motivated pharmacy and pharmacist, you are going to do a worse job than a pharmacy that is spending time, more time with patients dedicated to the craft, right? We are all humans. We come in different degrees of excellence, right? And so I believe that pharmacy and patients are served well when we have adequate incentives to reward quality pharmacy care and service. DIR fees were pitched like that, right? They were said, hey, we're going to create quality standards and it's going to incentivize better types of pharmacy. Instead, they became self, self-interested metrics from a PBM perspective that were used to further obfuscate the real prices of medicines and use as a tool to pull more money out of government programs and patients' wallets. At the end of the day, drug pricing has become a mechanism for lining pockets. And that is not just PBMs historically who have done that. It's every layer of the supply chain that has taken advantage of the opacity of drug pricing. So what I usually counsel both payers and pharmacists for from an advocacy perspective, not just on policy, but in contracting, is don't allow the drug price to become squishy and and easy to manipulate. You want drug pricing to be straightforward. What is the cost of the drug? What are you paying the pharmacist for their service? What are you paying the PBM to adjudicate that claim, et cetera, et cetera? I'm a believer in the philosophy of cost plus, And the second that you start integrating in all these little twists and turns within the drug pricing algorithm, you're creating opportunities for big companies to make money below the line. And so the more that we can simplify this transaction and eliminate a lot of this ambiguity and opacity, I believe a more efficient system and ultimately one that has better incentives for pharmacists uh, can rise from the ashes. Yeah, there was a study that Three Access Advisors helped with the Oregon Pharmacy Association on a uh, multiple sclerosis drug where the state Medicaid program was made to pay more than eight times the manufacturer's asking price for the generic medication for MS, which blew, you know, blew my head up. I just couldn't believe, you know, reading the data that you came out with. Um, give our listeners a little snippet of that summary, Antonio, and the work that you did with the Oregon Pharmacists Association. Yes, yeah, so we had about 85 pharmacies in the state of Oregon. You know, we always talk, hey, nobody in the drug supply chain is transparent. Well, until pharmacy shows up, right? 85 pharmacies handed over every single nook and cranny of their reimbursements uh, that they received from PBMs in every single sector of the market, Medicare, commercial, and Medicaid. And what we did is we compared 
what their experience was pharmacy by pharmacy, but then also see how pharmacies were being compensated relative to what Medicaid was being charged. The Oregon Medicaid program was being charged around $3,000 for generic Tecfidera, a very popular multiple sclerosis medicine. And Todd, as you pointed out, the list price for that drug was around $350. So that means that PBMs charged significantly more, thousands of dollars more than the list price, which we all know is very inflated to begin with. The, the rub from a pharmacy perspective is that, look, what if I was the pharmacy that got to fill a drug that had that carried a profit of around $3,000? That would be a nice day at the office. But out of the 85 or so Oregon independent and small chain pharmacies from our data set, which represented around 15% of all pharmacies in the state, they didn't fill a single one. And so I don't think it's right for any pharmacy to make thousands of dollars on an individual prescription. But that's the PBM's choice, right? The PBM sets the price. And what do you know? The typical community pharmacy isn't getting access to those overpaid prescriptions. Because why? And Loretta, Loretta knows the story very well. PBMs are able to force patients or incentivize patients to get specialty medicines filled at the pharmacies owned by the PBM. Yeah. So PBMs are very good at negotiating very low rates of reimbursement for most drug claims in pharmacies, but they all of a sudden lose their strength. They find kryptonite when they sit down at the negotiating table when it's drugs dispensed by their pharmacies. It's just insanity. Loretta, another aspect of that same medication that's coming from the PBM that owns its own mail order pharmacy is the fact that the temperature that that medication is um, you know, exposed to during transportation is a major issue with regards to the pharmacological effectiveness of that medication. You've done tremendous amounts of research. UniteForSafeMedications.com, once again, UniteForSafeMedications.com has several instances, actually dozens of instances where UPS drivers are collapsing on the job. Um, they're not able to get the medications because of high heat. And then once again, the substance itself is being impacted and the effectiveness of that drug in the way that it's delivered. That is part of what is PBM reform. It's not like we're sitting here making this stuff up. This is happening right now as we're actually talking on this podcast the ineffectiveness of the substance that is supposed to be a, a, a medication. Loretta, that's another part of PBM reform that's tied to this. Um, I wanted you to kind of speak to that to our listeners. Yeah, so I was shocked when I learned that the FDA and state boards of pharmacy failed to regulate the temperatures of mail order pharmacy as we were being forced to mail order pharmacy. When I started the a petition on change.org that now has over 220,000 supporters to stop the forcing, I would uncover that, you know, it wasn't just me. There are so many other moms, parents, um, patients that don't want to be forced in Arizona to put their medications in a, a mailbox in Arizona, mailboxes actually melt. A worker actually cooks steak in her vehicle. So we are working on trying to get uh, that changed. And uh, Oklahoma, I was really thankful to be part of the first enaction of regulation in Oklahoma um, to ensure that medications are uh, shipped safely. And you know, additionally, we need to make sure that they're shipped timely. The delays are another, you know 
horrible issue that just goes without punishment, without consequence. And, you know, patients like my son who are transplant patients can't get their medications on time. You add that to the temperature issue, it's a problem. Um, so currently we have Missouri, Texas, Arizona, um, uh, all discussing, you know, the temperature issues. Oklahoma, that still has to go on, you know, through the legislative process and be signed off by the governor and the PBMs are really fighting hard. They're lobbying hard. And this is where, again, we need, you know, the voices of other pharmacists and patients who want to see this issue uh, resolved. So um, it is heartbreaking too, when you hear Antonio, just to backtrack a little bit, Antonio talking about the specialty medications and how he obtained that data from the uh, small chain pharmacies and small independent pharmacies. What's going to happen when those pharmacies are no longer here? What's that going to do for drug prices? I mean, does, it's a large picture in access and uh, safe access and affordability is just tied together. And I wish that our legislators would just look at that side by side. And I'm thankful to hear, you know, the temperature issues in the last hearing um, that I had listened to. Uh, they, the, the temperature issues brought up quite a, quite a few times by the hospital um, physician, the, the oncologist there. So I was just really thankful to, to hear more people starting to discuss it and bring it up. I also want to give a shout out to the PBMs that are in the fight and that are the, um, the, al the alternative PBMs, the transparent PBMs, organizations like Capital RX, for example. Antonio, you have helped to craft and educate these PBMs who are trying to step out and say there are alternative business models that are still profitable, that don't gouge um, our American health um, system and, and drug um, policies and, and everything, that we can still make a living, we can still be successful. Um, you did some work with Capital RX, um, which was one of the fastest growing um, PBMs in the U.S., and and they have results of studies that they've done with Three Access Advisors. Give us a little update on that before um, we close up today. Yeah, Capital RX is pitching a a different philosophy um, uh, as a PBM. They're making their they're they're not subjectively creating prices. They are surrendering themselves to objectively created, externally uh, created benchmarks and not working to manipulate or create the prices of drugs. Uh, by using national average drug acquisition cost or NADAC as their foundational pricing benchmark, what that, what that creates is trust with their clients. They have no ability to manipulate those prices and those prices are transparent, which is radically different from anything else that we see in this space. There are other folks like Affirmed RX, which uh, just changed their name. They're, they were Amsana RX. Greg Baker, who's a, a really good pharmacist who started that organization, again, trying to create a PBM that is agnostic, not taking in money on rebates, not making money on spreads not owning their own pharmacies, uh, those, are, those, are, those are promises that are given to a plan sponsor that even if we wanted to make money, we, we can't because we have divorced ourselves of these conflicts. You know, We've done work for Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company, which is trying to build a separate philosophy as well. Here is the cost of our drugs. 
Here is what we get paid as a service fee. This is what we charge you in shipping. Um, those are all, regardless of how people might feel about any one of those logos or folks that I haven't mentioned, what we're talking about is upstarts that are trying to significantly undermine a culture of sleight of hand, right? Trying to end drug pricing being a large casino. It is being more transparent. It is ultimately creating a better governing philosophy where the incentives of the PBM or PBA are aligned in the direction of their clients and patients. Yeah, the National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or the NADAC. I tell you what, if you're in pharmacy and you don't know alphabet soup, you, you become lost in the acronym. But the NADAC is a benchmark that has potential uh, to create the billion do billions of dollars of savings to restore public trust. And um, there's a quote from Dr. Matthew Gibbs, president of Commercial Markets at Capital Rx, that said, they, they did a study with three access advisors that shows that greater transparency with prescription drug pricing practices could create billions of dollars in savings for patients and payers. They go, he goes on to say that he's seen clients lower their drug trend by 10 and up to 20% through leveraging the NADAC-based model. Antonio, is, is the NADAC, is this new or is it something that we're trying to get um, past uh, all of the the mystery that that is with WAC, with is with AWP, which is a moving target. But what does NADAC do for us? Well, NADAC is 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 imperfect, but relative to other drug pricing benchmarks, it is excellent. NADAC is compiled by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. If you're unfamiliar with them, they are not a publicly traded company. They are a government agency, and they use an external CPA firm or accounting, public accounting firm, Myers and Stouffer. And what they do is they ask pharmacies on a month-by-month -month basis, they say, hey, pharmacy, what did you pay to put the drugs on the shelf? And because it is a voluntary survey, around 400 to 600 pharmacies end up submitting their data back. And with that, on a month-by-month -month basis, they are creating essentially the going rate for what medicines cost for pharmacies to acquire. Now, we could essentially nitpick, you know, is maybe it shouldn't be voluntary. Maybe it should be done more rapidly than just every month. Whatever that is, right, there are ways that that philosophy can be perfected. But as a concept, what it's meant to do is say, let's, let's stop guessing and let's stop letting publicly traded companies invent what the prices are, let's instead survey the market and base our costs on that. So NADAC represents, I think, again, a surrender of trust, or a sur I'm sorry, a surrender of, of games, right? It represents trust. Instead of me telling you, hey, I'll send you the bill after I figure out the price, it's saying someone else who is unconflicted will ultimately help create a survey of what price is. And then rather than operating off of artificially inflated AWPs, we're going to create our experience with a foundation of the actual cost of the drugs. 
Loretta and Antonio, you are both uh, champions and we need you um, to continue your work. Um, I want to give a shout out to the three access advisors team. If you're listening and you want to learn about them, go to the number three access, A-X-I-S advisors.com. Once again, three access advisors.com. Loretta, um, a champion of the patient voice and understanding how this impacts the the health of your own family and your son uh, running UniteForSafeMedications.com. Once again, listeners, uh, support Loretta at UniteForSafeMedications.com. Loretta, we have more work to do. I'm going to have you back on This Week in Pharmacy and promising uh, to not only hear your voice, but also um, see your beautiful face. And I, I just want to give you a shout out and thank you for being part of this discussion today. I appreciate you for having me. Thank you. Antonio, I can't get enough of you. I met you at the NCPA meeting, I think back in 2017 or 16. I've been a fan ever since and I trust your work. Um, you're you're splicing out the data. You're working with so many different organizations that part that's part of the universe of PBM reform. And um, we appreciate your work. So thank you. Hey, man, always great to be with you. Let's talk some time before the Steelers are in the playoffs. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so, that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> for, for our listeners, pharmacists, pharmacy owners, you are our champions. PBM reform podcast is dedicated to this effort to change our healthcare system and the drug supply chain, please reach out to us. If you have members of Congress, if you have members of your Senate that want to advocate and build um, additional um, content to uh, really update not only our pharmacy and pharmacists, but more importantly, our consumers, these podcasts can be listened to by consumers and, and understanding and breaking down to them that we have a major problem that needs to be solved and with that, I thank you, pharmacists, for all that you do. Pharmacy owners, we're here for you as well. Um, please subscribe to us on all of your podcast platforms. Pick the favorite one. We're there. Um, Pharmacy Podcast Network is led by over 50 different contributors of content throughout the world. And now we're working with an international podcaster known as uh, uh, Dr. Patel with uh, Pharmacist Diaries. So we're very excited about that initiative and um, and it's just it's step by step by step, and the cracks in the armor of these three B, P, three big PBMs have started. It's significant, and we have to continue to uh, chip away. So I want to thank you all, Loretta, Antonio. Thank you. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.